The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. So we are back tonight with something ancient, something modern, and something sort of in between. To begin with tonight, we enter the world of the Hebrew Bible and we just look at the history of the 23rd Psalm. It seemed worth looking at something that most of us, even those who aren't religious at all, probably know a good bit uh, about or have it stuck in their minds. I first came across it. Uh, most vividly as a child in Toby Hooper's version of Salem's Lot. So it's been with me for quite a long time. And we get to see through the scholar James Kugel, the scholar and Orthodox Jew James Kugel, uh, just a great elaboration and laying out of how the meaning of this psalm changed from when it was first written up until the present moment, and how that change and that evolution and the way it was picked up and sort of moved around by Jews or Christians is sort of what happens to any religious text in miniature. You think of the psalm and then you think of the entire Hebrew and Christian Bibles. And you can probably tell a similar story for most of these texts, for most of the stories, and the history of interpretation that go along with them. Um, in the second part, we will read about the execution of Mary, Queen of Scots, in the late 1500s from Peter Ackroyd's book about the Tudors, and also just get an idea about uh, what a kind of a fraught existence being a member of the royal family or of royalty at all uh, was back in that time, and how at the end of the day, uh, even these people who were considered or even considered themselves to be divinely appointed uh, still had pangs of conscience and guilt. And in the very last part, we will hear three poems from the American poet Mary Oliver. So let's get down to all of that right after this message. Now, if we want to understand how religion works, one way to do it is to just look at one piece of a religion, one detail throughout time to see how it lives and changes. An even better way to do it is to see if we can find a detail or a text or a prayer that is familiar to most people, and then to see how it changes, how it stays the same, what happens to it. Uh, throughout its history. And we're very lucky because we have that in the Hebrew Bible in the 23rd Psalm. So let's just read the version of the 23rd Psalm that most of us know that comes from the 1611 King James translation. And it says this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me, all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And what I'm about to read to you is about a page and a half or so from James Kugel's amazing book, How to Read the Bible. And by that he means, since he is an Orthodox Jew, he means how to read the Hebrew Bible. And uh, he goes through this in a really masterful way. And he, he isolates two 
important dates at the outset. Uh, 586 BC is when uh, Jerusalem is sacked and uh, the first temple is destroyed and a good bit of the elite, the elites of Jerusalem are sent into Babylon in exile. And the second date he mentions is 70 CE, that is when the Romans sacked Jerusalem and the second temple is destroyed. And as we know, uh, the temple has not been rebuilt. And he makes uh, a wonderful point that before 586 BC, when we have, when, when scholars presume that most of the 150 Psalms that we have now, most of those had probably been composed already, not by King David, but by functionaries, priests, people who, scribes who were working in the temple. Um, we have those already, and we know with a fair degree of certainty uh, what these psalms were used for in the temple services, um, usually tied to the temple sacrifice. And Kugel says this, uh, that at some point, and certainly during the Babylonian exile when there was no temple, it seems to have been that reciting psalms may have functioned as the Jews' main form of worship in exile. Suddenly there, there is no sacrifice at the temple, there is no temple, and they're trying to find a way to be religious, to continue to practice, and one of those ways seems to have been in taking psalms that were originally embedded in a ritual or in a service at the temple and making them uh, viable in other ways, almost uh, even at some point just as personal, private practice. And then he says when you get to 70 CE after the second temple was destroyed and then you bring uh, early Christianity into it as well, uh, you realize that the Psalms are now, as Kugel says, the property of the synagogue and the early church. Again, there's no sacrifice now. The synagogue is not the same thing as the temple. And so the Psalms are being used even in a different way there. And here he mentions uh, the old temple Psalms with their evocation of coming before God or of bowing down in, quote, your holy place. These were being recited, but no longer in the original context or even with the original meaning that these psalms once had. And this is what Kugel says. This historical fact is of great significance to the larger theme of this book, his book, How to Read the Bible, because the case of the psalms is in miniature the case of the whole Bible. And I would argue that if you, if you just look at any religion that has lasted, for more than a thousand years, it is probably the case for them and their scriptures and their way of practice and prayer as well. And Kugel says, we know now better than ever what the Psalms originally meant and why they were written, that is, for the temple service and the temple sacrifice. But he asks an extremely important question, but is that original meaning to be decisive? If even within the biblical period, the Psalms came to mean something else between 586 BC and 70 CE, if people prayed the same words in a setting different from that one intended and with a different meaning, and if they have continued to do so for more than 20 centuries since then, does it really matter that the original authors did not mean for their words to be used and understood in the same way that we use and understand them today. And he says, this is not a question to be answered glibly, because usually uh, the, the way of looking at religion is, especially nowadays where everything has to be extreme, there's the extreme, uh, the extreme conservative view where you, you have to believe, you have to find some way to get back to the original meaning and not deviate from it. What did they originally mean these things uh, for and use them for that purpose. It's the only way to go. On the other side, there is the extreme liberal or cynical point of view, which is, well, we can make religious texts mean anything we want. And since we can make them mean anything we want, they actually don't mean anything, do they? 
what they actually mean is just uh, dependent upon historical circumstances and uh, the history of economics and, and of language and of who's in power and who is not in power and it's all that stuff. So this stuff really doesn't mean anything, does it? Uh, and for me, and this is what Kugel does amazingly well, he gets to the kernel of realizing that the importance of religion, the real meaning of religion, does not happen on either pole of certainty, either in the one of where we find safety in religion never changing, we find out what the original meaning is, and we don't deviate from it. And we don't find safety either in the cynical view that, well, if it can mean anything, then uh, it doesn't mean anything at all. It is actually somewhere in the middle. The meaning that comes out of these things is how we have the same words, as I'm about to uh, read from Kugel, the same words of the 23rd Psalm that we've had since maybe the 8th century BC and uh, up until 2023. The real meaning of religion comes in having the same words and of having them still mean something across all of those years, all of those centuries, and to even allowing them, even allowing the meaning to change, even allowing us as worshipers to change and alter that meaning. And this is what he gets to here. He says, the insights of modern scholarship certainly have not changed some things for worshipers and probably will continue to do so. Uh, for example, despite the beauty of the old King James translation of the 23rd Psalm, many modern Bibles have found themselves obliged to abandon its key elements. The basic understanding of the Psalm, as embodied in that 17th century translation, is no longer acceptable to modern scholars. Consider, for example, the Psalm's last line in the King James Version, Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And Kugel says at some point in this psalm's history, the phrase, dwell in the house of the Lord forever, came to be understood, especially by Christians, uh, as a reference to life after death. This was in part because of the psalm's early refer earlier reference to walking through the valley of the shadow of death, that shadow that extends over all the words that follow. And if one walks through that valley, getting to its other side, this implies that one arrives at what lies beyond death. Moreover, Kugel says, the psalm's reference to dwelling in the house of the Lord forever suggests an unlimited length of time going on even after all the days of my life, mentioned the previous clause. So it was that Psalm 23 came to be taken as the psalm in the Psalter that holds out the clear hope for life after death. Among other functions, it became a staple of funeral services. But most contemporary scholars reject this understanding. To begin with, the phrase valley of the shadow of death seems to be a misreading and a misdivision of the original Hebrew text. A very dark valley, or a valley of darkness, is closer to what the psalm really says. And it does not say through that valley. The Hebrew preposition means only in. And as for the psalm's last verse, the words translated forever really only mean for a length of days or for a long time. And so it seems more like a reaffirmation rather than an extension of all the days of my life. That is why most modern translations render this phrase as not forever, but my whole life long or the like. And here's the key, at least uh, for Jews. As for the house of the Lord, everywhere else in the Hebrew Bible, especially in the Psalms, this phrase means the temple. And contrary to, for instance, you go to England and go through any medieval cathedral, you will see gravestones, and the names and the years of people who have died and who are buried uh, actually in the church floor, in the ground there, or outside. Uh, that, is not, uh, that is not allowed in Judaism because, as, uh, as Kugel says, one could certainly not be buried in the temple and so dwell there after death because that proximity to, to corpses 
uh, is considered corpse defilement, and it would render the temple, not just the worshipers, but the temple itself, completely unfit for God's presence and for worship and for uh, services of any kind. So, Kugel says, we have, uh, we have what we believe the 23rd Psalm meant to Jews uh, prior to 586 BC when there was still a temple. And then after, I believe it's uh, 515 or so, when uh, the beginnings of a second temple are beginning to be built. We have the idea of what the 23rd Psalm has meant since the 17th century, especially since uh, the King James Bible translated it so well. And Kugel says this, which is the real 23rd Psalm? The one that talks about life after death or the other one, or indeed any other one that you can think of, any four, five, six other interpretations. And in the broadest sense, what are we to think of the Psalms today? Now that we know that, far from being the personal lyrics of King David, David, scribbled down by a prophet-like servant of God in times of trouble or celebration, they are actually mostly just cultic pieces penned by anonymous temple functionaries and studded with conventional phrases and themes and worded in a one-size-fits-all vocabulary that was designed to give worshipers the feeling of specificity while equipping them for multiple reuse. The answer to this question rests, to a surprising degree, with the person reading the Psalms and in the context in which that reading takes place. And Kugel begins his book um, with a Protestant sort of con controversy. Um, I can't find the man's name. His last name was Briggs. And this was someone who, in the late 1890s, suddenly became enamored with what was then sort of nascent biblical criticism. And he was someone who wanted to go back and find the original Bible, right? He wanted to sweep away all the uh, Catholic nonsense, as he saw it, all of the stuff that had been studded onto the services and interpretations, even since the time of Luther. And because he didn't think very well of Jews, he wanted to get rid of uh, as much of what he thought of uh, sort of Jewish interpolations into the text as he could to get to the original thing. And usually when we come to a debate like this, if we are religious believers of some kind, our job is to, uh, our job seems to be to come down on a side, right? But what I think Kugel is getting at, and I think what, uh, what has been coming into my mind more and more over the past 20 years, is that none of that is necessary. If we take what Kugel is saying seriously, that the meaning of religion is in the way that it changes, and that uh, while well, the 23rd Psalm may have meant this thing more than, what, 2,700 years ago, it doesn't need to mean that now. And if the 23rd Psalm meant what it ha uh, has a meaning since the 17th century, up until now, it also does not always have to mean that. The point is that religion changes, that is its strength, and that is its great danger as well, that it's not sitting still. And this means that the most abhorrent to our eyes, um, interpretations can also not just be waved away with, well, that's not what it really means. I think of murder, terrorism, all the religious violence and all of religious history, we would all like to find comfort in just saying, well, point to the text, that's not what it really means. But if we are going to take interpretation seriously, the vagaries of interpretation, if we're going to take the vagaries of just how religions grow and texts become attached to and ritual evolves or devolves and this and that, then we actually can't say that there is a right or a wrong interpretation, I don't think. The best we can do, at least if we are human and humane beings who, who believe, I suppose, in compassion and dealing decently with each other, the best we can do is congregate with other people who also believe that religious violence is wrong and to cling to that 
interpretation, not with any sense of certainty, but just simply to allow ourselves to have um, a more peaceful way of life. Um, that seems to be the only way out of it because religion can be so dangerous and so fraught. And I don't really think the answer is with certainty. And Google goes on to say this. When someone reads the words of a psalm as an act of worship, he or she takes over, in a sense, that psalm's authorship. It may have been written by an ancient Levite, but at the moment of its recitation, its words become the worshiper's own. They speak on his or her behalf to God. We realize our own influence and our own power over our own rituals in this way. It is quite profound. And he ends the, this, these few pages this way. This seems to me a remarkable phenomenon. And remember, this is an Orthodox Jew talking. This isn't some, um, what you might think of as a loose or liberal way of reading these things. Um, he believes in this stuff deeply, but he believes in it deeply in a way that isn't merely literal, right? Uh, this seems to me a remarkable phenomenon, precisely because what is crucial are not the words themselves, are not the words themselves, but the mind of the worshiper who utters them. The very attitude of prayer pushes to the background the historical circumstances of the psalm's composition. The true author is now the worshiper himself, and maybe one of the reasons we need prayer at all in this way is because things remain so fraught, even at the end of the most pious and the most wanting and the most personal uh, kind of prayer. According to one history of the kings and queens of Britain, Mary, Queen of Scots, who was born in 1542 and executed in 1587, continues to be the most heavily romanticized of the Stuart monarchs. On the thrones of Scotland and France, and with a strong claim to the throne of England, her vicissitudes were shaped more by political circumstances than her occasional impulsiveness and folly. Three husbands, long exile and long imprisonment, and then execution ordered by her cousin, Queen Elizabeth I. These have all spawned plays, novels, and opera, portraying her as Catholic martyr or papist plotter, and all increasing the mythology. And just to give an idea of what those vicissitudes were and her marriages were, and then we will get to a wonderful, or I guess wonderful isn't the word, a vivid telling of her execution. Uh, this is what that same entry goes on to say, uh, that the question of succession remained a matter of concern, and Mary, who was Queen of Scotland, uh, still had eyes on the English throne, and it was believed a way to get there. Uh, various suitors were considered and dropped, until she fell in love with Henry, Lord Darnley, himself in line to both crowns. It was soon realized that this second marriage was a mistake. This is after she was married to the heir apparent and then the king of France, and the king of France died a year or two after, and she decided to return to Scotland. Um, so it was soon realized that the second marriage was a mistake. Not only did it alienate Elizabeth, but the marriage was by Catholic rites, and Mary's advisors saw themselves displaced by a youth ill-suited to bear the title of king. No longer on good terms with Darnley, uh, Mary, who was pregnant by this time, seemed to be spending too much time with her Italian-born secretary, David Rizzio, and the atrocity of his murder in front of Mary, Queen of Scots, on 9 March of 1566, is well documented. 
and the assassin's return from England was tantamount to a death warrant for her husband, Darnley, who appears to have orchestrated the murder of the man who was believed to be his wife's lover. The future King James VI of Scotland and King James I of England was delivered safely in Edinburgh Castle in June, but the following February Mary was again a widow after Darnley's murder at Kirk of Field, and it's believed that she was involved in the plot to kill him. And it says that uh, she may not have been directly involved in the plot, but she was certainly affected by the suspicion that fell on James Bothwell, with whom she had become infatuated and with whom she married, it seems, uh, almost immediately. She waited a few months. Uh, this third marriage proved too much, and they were forced to flee. And on 15 June of 1567, uh, they were confronted at Carberry Hill, east of Edinburgh, Bothwell fled north, but Mary surrendered, and was imprisoned at Loch Levin Castle, and after miscarrying twins, she was compelled to abdicate the Scottish throne on the 24th of July in favor of her infant son, James. Mary remained imprisoned in Loch Levin until her escape on May 2nd, 1568, and she rapidly raised a substantial force, although they were defeated at Langside on the 13th of May. Her subsequent flight across the Solway sealed her fate. Elizabeth found her presence an embarrassment, yet felt it wiser to keep her in England under restraint. And so for the next 19 years, Mary was moved around central England, ending, ending finally at Fotheringay. She plotted obsessively perhaps to assassinate Elizabeth, but her involvement in a series of Catholic intrigues at last persuaded Elizabeth to sign the warrant for her execution. And so why do I uh, bother spending time on this story, which even just this summary begins to be a list of names and dates and reigns? I think that a story like this, just briefly looked at, uh, you can see what... Uh, what knots people tie themselves into being involved in these intrigues and what was required of them if you happen to be of a certain lineage and happen to then be in a line to a certain throne of this or that. Um, it's just an example of what people do to themselves and to each other just by way of trying to organize the world um, as best they can. This is sort of the thing that you see minimally, but still sort of tragically uh, dramatized in the, uh, in the series The Crown on uh, Netflix. And it's something to see, to not spend too much time on, because then it does just become a bunch of dates and names, or it becomes mythology or a bad romance novel, or I don't know, a good romance novel. Um, but just to see what people do to themselves and do to each other when religion, politics, uh, or these other things conspire to raise people up, send them down, or make them do things they otherwise would not do. It's hard to imagine this same woman uh, being married three or four times, having a lover killed, a, a first husband die, a second husband uh, murdered, and a third, and a lover murdered, and all the rest of it. Um, if she hadn't been put in the situation that she did, but uh, I do all of this now to read these few pages from Peter Ackroyd's book *Tudors*, and this is just his telling of Mary, Queen of Scots, and her execution. And let's get the year down right because, of course, I forgot that already, 1587. So, on the 4th of February, 1587, the principal executioner traveled to Fotheringay Castle dressed as a serving man. The axe was concealed in his trunk. On Tuesday, the 7th of February, the commissioners arrived at Fotheringay, and when they were admitted into Mary's presence, they informed her that they had received an instruction under the great seal, that is, from Elizabeth I, she was to be executed on the following morning. She refused to believe them at first, and then she became agitated. She called for her physician, 
and began to discuss money owed to her in France. At that point she broke down. She asked to see her Catholic chaplain, but the commissioners did not want to turn her execution into the martyrdom that she so much wished for. Instead, they offered her the presence of a Protestant dean. She sent a note to her confessor and asked him to pray for her that night. And in the morning, when she was led to her death, he, she asked that he might see her and bless her. At eight o'clock on the morning of 8th of February, the provost marshal of Fotheringay Castle knocked on the door of her apartments. There was no response at first, prompting fears that the Queen of Scots had taken her own life. Suicide was a mortal sin, however, and Mary did not wish to stay in her personal glory. The door was opened. She stood on the threshold, wearing a robe and jacket of black satin trimmed with velvet. Her hair was arranged in a coif, and over her head, and falling over her back, was a white silk veil. A crucifix of gold hung from her neck, and in her hand she held another crucifix of ivory. As she passed into the chamber of presence, where she had been tried, the master of the household knelt and wept, and she tells him, Melville, you should rejoice rather than weep, that the end of my troubles is come. Tell my friends I die a true Catholic. She asked for her chaplain. He had been forbidden to attend, for fear of some religious demonstration, and then she looked around for her women. They also had been kept back at a precaution against unseemly scenes. They might scream, of course, or faint. Yet Mary needed her courtiers to send an authentic account of her death to her admirers, at home and abroad, and in the end it was agreed that she could choose six of her closest followers to attend her, and she tells them when they are assembled, let us go then, and she descended the staircase to the great hall. The hall had been cleared of its furniture, and at the upper end stood the scaffold, twelve feet square and two and a half feet in height. It was covered with a black cloth and railed. A black cushion had been placed before it together with a black chair. The axe had been put against the rail. A wood fire blazed in the chimney. Present in the hall were three hundred knights and gentlemen of the neighborhood to witness the memorable occasion, and thousands had gathered outside the castle. The news of her imminent execution had soon spread. These people did not need social media or cable news at the time. They figured out what was going on quite quickly. Uh, quite calm and giving no sign of fear, Mary sat down in the chair made ready for her in front of the block and she listened to the reading of the warrant against her. The Earl of Shrewsbury approached her. Madam, you hear what we are commanded to do. You will do your duty, she says. She then prepared herself to kneel and to pray when the Dean of Peterborough tried to forestall her, but he stuttered his words. Mr. Dean, I am a Catholic and must die a Catholic. It is useless to attempt to move me and your prayers will avail me but little. There was a slight altercation, and when she knelt down, she began to call out an English prayer in which the assembly joined. So she recited in a loud voice the penitential psalms in Latin, striking the crucifix against her bosom. The executioners, dressed in black, stepped forward to ask her forgiveness for the duties they were obliged to perform. And she says, I forgive you, for now I hope you shall end all my troubles. They began to arrange her dress for the final scene, and she looked at the earls close to her. She says, Truly, my lords, I never had such grooms waiting on me before. She laid her crucifix on the chair. The principal executioner took it up as a prize of his office, but was commanded to leave it. Her silk veil was then removed, together with the black robe and the black jacket, and beneath them it was seen that she was wearing underclothes of crimson velvet and crimson satin. She was now blood red, the color of the martyr they hadn't thought 
to check that. She knelt upon the cushion as her lady sobbed around her. Adieu, she said, au revoir. And one of her entourage then bound her eyes with a handkerchief. She recited the psalm in te domine confido before feeling for the block. I trust in you, my Lord God. And she whispered in, man, in manus tuas, Domine, commendo anima meam, into your hands, Lord, I commend my spirit. And she stretched forward one, uh, and as she stretched forward, one of the executioners held her while the other raised his axe. But his aim was awry, and the blade fell on the knot of the handkerchief. He raised the axe again, and this time he was successful. He severed the head, with the exception of a small shred of skin. All of these details uh, are known and have been passed down to us um, over the past almost 450 years. The coif and the false hair fell off, and when he picked up the head to show to the spectators that it, that it was that of a withered and nearly bald, gray-haired, old woman, the dean stepped forward. So perish all enemies of the queen. The assembly called out amen. It was over. But then a lapdog was found, concealed in her clothes, and yelping, it slid in her blood. It was taken away and carefully washed. Anything touched by Mary, the scaffold, the handkerchief, even the beads of her rosary, were now burned in the great hall. No relics were allowed to survive. Yet she had played her final part to perfection, and the story of Mary, Queen of Scots, has remained in the public imagination ever since. On the morning of the 9th of February, Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth, went out riding, and when she returned to the palace at Greenwich, she heard the bells of London ringing. She asked the reason. I never saw her fetch a sigh, Elizabeth's young cousin, Robert Carey, recalled, but when the Queen of Scots was beheaded, even though she had just ordered her execution after many years and uh, much delay about whether or not she could, whether or not she was able to, and whether or not it was something that she wanted to do in the first place. But it was more than a sigh, Peter Ackroyd writes. It was a rant, an explosion of guilt and rage. She became almost hysterical accusing those closest to her of deceit and duplicity. She had never intended that her dear cousin should die, and so she commanded Burgley from her presence and refused to allow him back to the court for two months. She admitted to signing the warrant, but she claimed that she had asked Davison to just keep a hold of it, not to deliver it. Now she wanted Sir William Davison's life in revenge. She was persuaded out of this impolitic course, and instead, Davison was tried in the court of the Star Chamber for abusing the confidence of the Queen. He was committed to the Tower, but he was released a year later, and he, too, is said, had played his part. And it seems that while she did agree to do this, it also seems that her advisers sort of egged her on uh, more than they ought to have done. But still, uh, she did it, and this is a moment of sort of a queen realizing uh, her own weakness, that she has been tricked, or just that she herself um, is a human being and is weak, um, and she can't really just go off and say, off with their heads. Um, she realizes that there is something that she has done that uh, her mere power or her mere reaction for more violence uh, cannot undo, as it were. And it says, Within four days of Mary's execution, Elizabeth had written to James VI, denying any involvement in the act. Of course, this is the man who would uh, succeed her on the throne as James I of England, and that is the King James of the King James Bible as well. She writes to King James VI, My dear brother, I would you knew, though not felt, the extreme dolor that overwhelms my mind for that miserable accident which far contrary to my meaning, hath befallen. It is true that she had been placed under intolerable pressure by her counselors, principal among them Walsingham and Burghley, and she may have persuaded herself 
that she had acted against her will. Her ministers had conspired behind her back to hasten Mary's death, but her distress may also have been caused by the pangs of an awakened conscience. And isn't that important to see? Every now and then in these stories of numbers, names, dates, reigns, and the pretzels they had to twist themselves into to kill this person, to exile that one, to diminish the influence of this one, to raise this one up, all of that, to just suddenly read something very careful and very quiet that just says one of these people uh, may also have just been hit by the pangs of an awakened conscience that their title and everything they've worked for and everything they've tried to show to the public as a public face and as and if anyone has ever done that it was elizabeth I, the great image of her um to just see the pangs of an awakened conscience So let's end the night with a little bit of poetry. And what I'm about to read to you reminds me of when I lived in California from 2004 to 2007. And the great sort of realization about poetry that came to me during those years came towards the end of it, when I suddenly realized that um, because I read poetry for the same way that other people read their scriptures or their mythologies, I thought, why don't I stop reading contemporary poetry and just read various scriptures and mythologies and go back to the source of these things? That was the great realization that came to me one day in California, and that's the big idea that I've taken with me ever since. But before that, before I thought that, um, before I thought that I had to sever myself from contemporary poetry, this would have been about 2005 or so, I remember getting a subscription to Poetry Magazine, and I thought I will finally get in touch or just have some vague knowledge of what people think is good poetry these days. And maybe a year, a year and a half, and I really didn't like much of any of it. And the only thing that I could remember is that the one poet whose name stood out uh, as writing poetry that I liked was someone named Mary Oliver. And for years and years, I, I meant to find an actual book of her poems. And I didn't do that until the last year or so. And if anyone else out there who hasn't heard of Mary Oliver wants a collection of her poetry, uh, there's one that's just called Devotions, and it's the selected poems of Mary Oliver that she put out just before she died. She lived from 1935 until 2019, and this is a good selection of what she can do. Now, I have to admit that when I finally got down to reading more than two or three poems uh, of hers, I can see why some people don't like her. There's a kind of... Uh, easy way of writing about nature and illumination in nature, and uh, it's just suspicious when you come across so much positivity. Um, there's very little that is dark in what she is doing, and in the same way that uh, that Walt Whitman sort of began with his one voice in the 1855 Leaves of Grass, and never really found another voice to write out of, um, in the same way that, uh, because of that, Whitman's earliest poetry is the best, where he finds a way to harness this one voice that he has and just write some incredible poetry out of it. My sense is that Mary Oliver is the same way. If you look at, let me just look at the table of contents. Um, this selected poetry goes from the most recent uh, to her earliest poetry, and so it starts in 2015 or so and moves back to the 60s and 70s. Uh, my guess is that Mary Oliver is the same way. 
Um, her poetry from 1994 and earlier seems to be her strongest. And after that, uh, it's sort of that Hemingway effect of becoming maybe a caricature of yourself. Maybe I'm wrong in all of this, and you will tell me. But uh, when she's good, she is immensely good. And I just want to read three poems of hers tonight. The first of these is called White Owl Flies Into and Out of the Field. And this is what it says. Coming down out of the freezing sky with its depths of light like an angel or a Buddha with wings, it was beautiful and accurate, striking the snow and whatever was there with a force that left the imprint of the tips of its wings five feet apart, and the grabbing thrust of its feet, and the indentation of what had been running through the white valleys of the snow. And then it rose gracefully and flew back to the frozen marshes to lurk there like a little lighthouse in the blue shadows. So I thought, maybe death isn't darkness after all, but so much light wrapping itself around us, as soft as feathers, that we are instantly weary of looking and looking and shut our eyes, not without amazement, and let ourselves be carried as through a translucence of mica to the river that is without the least dapple or shadow, that is nothing but light, scalding aortal light, in which we are washed and washed out of our bones. And that strikes me as being pretty incredible. Um, a good way of talking about death in a way that uh, hasn't been done quite that way before, in which we are washed and washed out of our bones. This is just a small poem called Wild Geese, and it says this, You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. And that's very nice too, isn't it? Um, I should say, with poems like these, we are lucky that I guess over the past 20 years or so, uh, Mary Oliver has been the best-selling poetry in America. We could do much worse than poems like these. This is, uh, the last one I'll read here, is called Snow Moon, Black Bear Gives Birth. And look at how she, she does this here. After all the praise that I've given to Ted Hughes's uh, harsh and cynical and just violent poems of nature and the lives of animals, it is nice to just come across something that is just as vital, something that is just as vivid and uh, brittle and beautiful, but just from the from the other side of things. This is Snow Moon, Black Bear Gives Birth. It was not quite spring. It was the gray flux before. Out of the black wave of sleep she turned, enormous beast, and welcomed the little ones, blind pink islands no bigger than shoes, 
She washed them. She nibbled them with teeth like white tusks. She curled down beside them like a horizon. They snuggled. Each knew what it was, an original, formed in the whirlwind, with no recognitions between itself and the first steams of creation. Together, they nuzzled her huge flank until she spilled over, and they pummeled and pulled her tough nipples, and she gave them the rich river. And isn't that a great poem right there? I think what, uh, maybe where she goes astray in later poems, at least that I've seen people say, and I can see it as well in some of these, is that she gives a description of a thing, or she has an experience herself, and then at the end there's always four or five lines where she gives you the interpretation of what just happened. But that doesn't happen in any of the poems I just read here, and it doesn't happen in the best of her poetry. It's just a clear, precise thing with no interpretation, and you are left to sit with it yourself. So let me read that poem one more time, and then we will call it night. Snow moon, black bear gives birth. It was not quite spring. It was the gray flux before. Out of the black wave of sleep she turned, enormous beast, and welcomed the little ones, blind pink islands, no bigger than shoes. She washed them. She nibbled them with teeth like white tusks. She curled down beside them like a horizon. They snuggled. Each knew what it was, an original, formed in the whirlwind, with no recognitions between itself and the first steams of creation. Together they nuzzled her huge flank until she spilled over, and they pummeled and pulled her tough nipples, and she gave them the rich river. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.